Jeremy, thank you for leading us and thank you for leading our children so well. So at this time, all the children will be dismissed to Children's Church over here to my left and your right, and I know they'll have a great time as a part of that. Before I get into the message today, actually, I got two other things to say. One is in regard to the Vacation Bible School and these 17 individuals giving their hearts to Christ. Y'all remember our goal for the year is to see 53, at least 53 people give their hearts to Christ through the ministry of Trinity Wesleyan Church, and some of that will happen in services, some will happen with individuals sharing with others about the love of Christ. Uh, We are over halfway there, uh, so we have a reason to celebrate that. God is doing great things, and we see lives that are being changed. The other thing was uh, Hannah mentioned the fundraising, and I thank you all so much for being a part of that as we are preparing to go to Costa Rica. We leave July 22nd. It'll be July 22nd through the 29th, and it will be an incredible opportunity for us to just be a blessing and meet needs in Costa Rica. That being said, our goal for fundraising was a total of 24000 that needed to come in, and this morning morning, I went back over the numbers just to double check this. We are sitting at $21,666.20. Now, I hate the number 666, so if at least one of y'all would give $1, then that would get us past that, and I would feel much better about it. So just think about that later on. That would be great. Sorry, that was not something that was planned. I just felt like I would add that. So I thank you very much for your faithfulness to be a part of this church. Uh, I'm glad to be back. I don't know if y'all are glad to have me back, but I want to thank you for allowing me to be able to get away over the past couple weeks. My family and I had a great trip out out to Oklahoma Wesleyan University, although it was definitely a very long trip. Uh, to help break up the trip, we decided to stop and see a few things that we probably won't get to see very often. For example, uh, we stopped in Memphis and we were able to visit Graceland and to see a place called Beale Street where a lot of blues music really finds its roots. I will confess that Memphis, if you're from Memphis, please don't be offended. It is the dirtiest city that I have ever been in in my life and I'd be okay if it was the last time I'm ever in Memphis. So we were also able to stop in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and on the way back, we stopped to see some family as well, and I thank you for allowing me and my family that time to go out there. I'm also grateful for those who filled the pulpit so well in my absence. Uh, I'm grateful for technology. I was able to listen to the Sunday morning service, uh, even on the road the first week. We were uh, in the middle of traveling, and we were able to listen to Pastor Lee, who did a fantastic job. And then last Sunday, we were with my mother-in-law, and we had the opportunity to listen to the service online for that as well. And it is such a blessing to have those kinds of staff members as a part of this church. I know many other pastors who... They are envious of the folks that we have on staff here, so I do not take that for granted. We are certainly blessed. 
Today I am excited to be back and I want to begin a brief series focused on the new birth that is available through Jesus Christ. The structure of this series is going to be based out of a conversation that is recorded in John chapter 3. So I'm going to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. This is a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. It is appropriate that we just talked about 17 kids surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ because as we talked about that, what we were truly celebrating is the fact that they have experienced new birth. And we believe to Today, that the same new birth that those kids have experienced is the same new birth that Jesus is talking about in this passage, and it is the same new birth that is available to each of us today. Again, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Listen to it with me for just a moment. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, we'll get to Jesus's response in the coming weeks, and we'll talk a little bit about it later in this sermon. But I want to begin today with Nicodemus. And there's one point that I'm going to just kind of barely breeze over. It talked about the fact that he came to Jesus at night. Well, there were plenty of opportunities to speak with Jesus. And one of the questions that one might ask is, why would he come at night? Maybe it was because there would be less people around. Maybe it was because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. We know based on his position that he is probably a well-known figure, and maybe he didn't want to be seen by everyone else. Don't get lost in the details. The truth is that is just a side note to this conversation. There is something far more important that is in play. But as we talk about Nicodemus... We need to know, first of all, who is this man who seeks a private audience with the Lord? To best answer that question, let me first say that this story, had this story taken place 2,000 years later, had it taken place today, Nicodemus would have been among the most respected people in the church. We know that he was a Pharisee. He's even a member of what's called the Jewish ruling council. That means that he would have been viewed as a teacher of the law. He probably had students who listened to him often. He was a man that would have been well respected. He also would have likely been faithful to fast at least twice a week. That was a part of his role in spiritual leadership. That seems pretty righteous, at least to me. I wonder how many of us fast twice a week. He would have also prayed at least two hours per day. That was one of the minimum requirements among the Pharisees of that day. How many of us would say that we pray at least two hours a day? Don't raise your hands. According to the law, it is also likely that he was one who tithed on everything that he had. Again, something that is very common in today's church. So as we consider this man and who he was, he was a good man. 
He was a respected man. And he would have even been viewed as a holy man. I will add one other thing that is somewhat unique to Nicodemus. The way that he addresses Jesus indicates that he likely has a certain level of respect for Jesus that other Pharisees would lack at times. Remember that they would often stand opposed to Jesus and would even be involved with a plot to have Jesus arrested and crucified, which would succeed. They weren't nice people in their dealings with Jesus. Yet Nicodemus addresses Jesus as rabbi. In other words, teacher, master. He notes that what Jesus is doing could only be from God. This indicates an openness to what Jesus has to offer. Yes, he's well-groomed, he's been taught well, he's been educated among the greatest of theologians. Yet here he is and he recognizes Jesus brings something to the table that others do not. One of the thoughts that goes through my mind is, what had Nicodemus seen that others had not seen? Maybe there were individuals that Jesus had healed, that Jesus had transformed. Nicodemus knew those people, and it seemed impossible, yet somehow something had been done. Or maybe it was simply that the Holy Spirit spoke to Nicodemus and said, you need to go and talk to this man. For all intents and purposes, Nicodemus seems like a man who is worthy of his reputation. He stands out even from, from the uh, religious elite. In fact, I'll add one more unfortunate reality for each of us. If he really is as good as he looks, I hate to inform you, but he was probably better than most of us, if not all of us. I mean, think about it. What sins have taken root in your life? Has it been in the area of compromise or sexual immorality? Has it been in your devotion to the Lord? Now, I know that this guy probably has other areas of sin that only the Lord knows about. Yeah, he looks good on the outside. Perhaps he's dealing with pride over his righteousness. Jesus, I'm a good man. Lord, I, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. Perhaps it wasn't his pride. Perhaps his thought life was less than honorable. Jesus would later declare that if you've lusted after a woman, then you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. He would add that if you've hated an individual, well, you've already committed murder in your heart. It's likely that Nicodemus is not as perfect as he seems. But the point is that neither are we. We can look good on Sunday morning and we can put the smile on. I'll tell you what, this morning was the first time I had to wear a tie in three weeks. And honestly, I'm sitting there thinking, how do I do this again? There are many of us, we look different on Sunday as opposed to every other day of the week. And we do a really good job of making ourselves look good. But maybe what's on the inside doesn't always measure up with what's on the outside. These are all sins that are part of the old us that must die so that we can experience new birth. I want to get back to Nicodemus, this good and righteous man. Note that Jesus takes no time to commend him for his good works. 
Instead, Jesus responds to Nicodemus' statement by declaring that very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I heard a theologian explain that this statement, very truly, I tell you, or in the King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, that it literally means that this is always the case. It's not a figurative or relative truth. It's not dependent on your current situation. He is saying that there is no way around this. He is saying that what I'm about to say is always true. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The importance of this is found in the way we have described this man. Remember, he is a good man, a righteous man, a teacher of the law, a very disciplined man. But none of that is relevant to the issue of being able to one day see the kingdom of God. Can you imagine how discouraging and confusing these words must have been for him? You mean that all my goodness is not enough to see the kingdom of God? All my sacrifice, all my stubborn obedience, it's not enough? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Let me make sure you catch the point here. Some of you are really good people. I know you well enough to know that you would give the shirt off your back to help your brother or sister in need. But all of your goodness will not be enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. It is only by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what the apostle Paul is getting at as he writes to Titus. In Titus 3, 5, he says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe some of us are thinking, but I've done so much. I've been faithful. I've been generous. And by the way, I want you to do all kinds of good works for the Lord. I want you to be faithful. I want you to be generous but it's not just about what we do. The righteous things that you have done can never make up for the unrighteous things that have invaded your life. You see, according to the scriptures, the wages of sin is death. And no amount of goodness on your part will ever be able to make up for what you've already done. Only God can do that. I had someone ask me, one time, what that verse means when it says, he saved us. The individual is asking was certain that he was not dying and therefore he was not in need of saving. Stood his question. It was the summer of 1989 and I was about to be a senior in high school. Several of my friends from our football team would go each year uh, actually, each summer, we would go to one of the guys' house uh, to go swimming. Uh, friend's name was Jerry, and he had a pool in his backyard. And every day after we worked out, we would go swimming. 
Well, there was one player who couldn't swim. His name is Mike Pathetos. He was a big guy. He was one of our offensive linemen, and everything about him screamed, I am bigger and stronger than you. And he was right. But Mike couldn't swim. One of the defensive backs, his name was Richie. Richie decided one day, I can teach you how to swim. And I don't know how he did it, but somehow he convinced Mike that he could teach him. But Mike was nervous about us being in the pool with him, so Mike asked all of us to sit on the sides of the pool because he thought we might mess with him. He's probably correct. We would have messed with him in some way. They did it in the shallow end to begin with. They did it for a few minutes, and then Mike felt comfortable to try the deep end. He started out great, kicking his feet and moving his hands, but something happened. Most of us, because of our, let's just be honest, because of our fat, we will float. But Mike was in really good shape. He had a lot of muscle. And while he's trying to doggy paddle across the pool, suddenly his body began to shift. And now he's vertical. And he's still doggy paddling. He's still kicking his feet. But all he's doing is treading water. And suddenly he's crying out for help. The young man who was trying to teach him, I told you he was a defensive back. I was a defensive back too, but sometimes they played me at defensive end because I was bigger than some of the defensive backs. Richie was not. Richie immediately reached out to help him, and Mike Pathetos reached out, grabbed his shoulder, and pushed him down in the water. (laughs) Just made it worse. Suddenly, he's yelling for help, and he's frantic about it. I jumped in swam to the bottom of the pool so he could not grab me, grabbed him by the feet, and I walked him over to the edge of the pool. At that very moment, I found it very interesting. He didn't want anyone in the pool with him because he did not trust us, again, with merit. But that being said, when that moment of need came, he knew that he needed help. Interestingly enough, That wasn't the last time I had the opportunity to pull Mike Petitos out of the water. Later that summer, we were on a canoe trip on the Shenandoah River. And as we were on this canoe, sure enough, now there are nine of us that are on the trip. That gives us an uneven number. You're supposed to have two people in the canoe. But for some reason, Richie, the same guy that tried to teach him to swim, uh, ended up in the canoe with me and Mike Petitos. As we've been out there for a while, Mike Petito thought, you know what, I could take my vest off. I need to get some sun. And sure enough, Richie knocked the, t- the canoe over. We fall over. Immediately, Mike realized that he could not reach the ground beneath him. And he sounded like the camel on the Geico commercial. Mike, 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 Mike. Over and over again. I swam around behind him, grabbed him, dragged him to the edge of the shore, and he wore a vest for the rest of the day. I'm going to suggest to you that Mike Pathetos knows what it feels like to need saving. Maybe you've never needed saving like that. Maybe you've never nearly drowned. Maybe you've never been pulled from a burning house. Maybe you've never been in a serious accident where medical support was necessary to save your life. Or maybe you have, 
Regardless, I want you to know that you are in need of saving. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of two men, one who is wealthy and another who is very poor. Listen to it, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. This passage is not so much about wealth versus poverty. Instead, it is about the judgment of God that is coming. The wealthy man lived as if there was nothing to fear. He enjoyed his life of luxury without concern over what lay beyond this life. Yet one day he wakes up in Hades, experiencing great torment and suffering. In fact, he says, I am in agony in this fire. Now, I want you to notice that the rich man is not defined as evil. He was spoiled and probably somewhat self-centered, but he isn't described as violent or profane or abusive. He isn't described as sexually immoral or any of the other things that we tend to associate with those who are destined for hell. Instead, he is simply a man who has lived somewhat oblivious to the fact that eternal death was very near. He was in need of saving. Several years ago, I attended a conference in Kansas City. The return flight had us fly through Dallas and then back up to Colorado Springs where I was living at the time. Well, the first flight only had about 10 passengers on board. And the best thing to come from that was that I had the opportunity to strike up a conversation with the stewardess. She sat beside me the entire way to be completely transparent with you from the very beginning of that conversation. My goal was to introduce her to Jesus Christ. I began by asking her various questions about what she believed. She had apparently put some thought, at least some thought, into her beliefs. She began by saying that she was a Zen Buddhist. Well, I had never met a Zen Buddhist before, so I had a ton of questions to ask her that day. One of my follow-up questions was, do you believe in heaven or hell? She was very quick in her response. Absolutely not. No, I don't believe that a loving God would ever send somebody to hell. I then asked her if she were to die today, 
where would she go? And she answered without hesitation, heaven. Now, wait a second. I just asked you if you believed in heaven or hell, and the answer was no. But you are confident that you will end up in heaven. There's a lot more to this conversation with this new friend, and I did get to share the gospel with her, and she was very much interested in it. In fact, let me just tell you, one of the coolest things, I didn't get to share the gospel completely on the trip from Colorado Springs to Dallas. As we're pulling into Dallas, she had to get up and take care of the other passengers, and she said, what, what are you doing after you get to Dallas? I said, well, I've got another flight to Colorado Springs. I'm on that flight. We get on the flight, and I'm excited, man. I'm going to be able to share the gospel with this lady. We get on the flight, and there is not an empty seat on the plane. I'm like, you have got to be kidding. There's no way that I'm going to be able to share with this stewardess. I'm sitting in the very back of the plane. As we take off, she walks to the back. She said, Mike, there's an empty seat up here beside me. Would you like to come up front? And I got to share the gospel with that lady that day. To her, hell was irrelevant. It did not exist. There are many people today who do not believe that hell is relevant. But Jesus declares that hell or Hades is a real place. These terms are often used interchangeably throughout scripture, but they always refer to this place as a place of eternal death, great suffering, eternal darkness, separation from God. It's what God longs to save us from. So let's get back to Titus 3.5, the verse that I read to you earlier from Paul. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. There is no other way for us to be saved it won't be through our goodness, but rather it will be through his mercy. You've probably heard people use the phrase, save yourself. Well, you can't save yourself in regard to hell. Only God's mercy can do that. Peter takes it a step further in Acts 4.12 when he says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Salvation won't be through the worship of any other God. In fact, this is a difficult truth to hear, but there are many good people throughout the world who have faithfully followed their various gods, and they will all stand before the Lord one day only to find that their gods were inadequate to save them. Their goodness was inadequate to save them. Salvation is only found because of God's mercy. We didn't wash away our sins. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth. I've got one more thing I want to share with you today. I told you earlier today that Jesus often spoke of hell as a real place. Perhaps the clearest teaching on this is found in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46. I won't read the entirety of that passage to you, but I do want to read a few verses. Listen, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 34 to 40, by the way, will speak of the great reward that awaits those sheep who are on his right. But then he will speak of the goats on his left. Continuing in verse 41, we read that, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then skipping down to verse 46, he says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I want you to know today that hell is a real place. It is an ugly place. And it is a place that I don't ever want to see. As such, I plan on being counted among the sheep. And I wonder, are you going to be counted with the sheep or the goats? I heard a message not that long ago from Billy Graham. I know he's long since passed, but his sermons are still available. I heard a message from Billy Graham not that long ago where he talked about a scientific experiment that was taking place at that time in New Zealand. They were crossbreeding sheep with goats. The result was an animal that was called a jeep, but it was the G instead of a J. So the G from goats mixed with the eep from sheep. I fear that there are many, even within the church, who are somewhere between the two. They've got a little bit of sheep in them. They've got a little bit of goat in them. But they're not really sure which one they are. The title of the message today has been Salvation From. What are you being saved from? My hope is that you've gotten the message that we all need to be saved, first of all, from the judgment of God. There is coming a day where all of us will stand before the Lord, and he will either say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, or he will say, away from me, for I never knew you. He will look upon your life, and he will see all the things that other people have not seen. Everything will be made known, and he will know whether you've lived in accordance with his will. He's going to see every sin, but here I want you to understand this. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away your sin. So no matter what sin it is that you've done, and maybe even right now you're thinking about things that, you've t that have taken place in your life, choices that you've made, things that you hope nobody else ever finds out about. I want you to know that God will know that that sin was there, but it is the blood of Jesus that washed it away. So when you stand before him, you do not have to fear whether or not he is going to welcome you or reject you. If you have allowed sin to remain in your life, it is time for that sin to be washed by the blood of Jesus, for you to be forgiven. I don't know when the Lord will come back. I don't know when he will call us home individually. But I do know that that day will come. Maybe it will be a thousand years from now. 
Maybe it will be today. I want to make sure that I'm counted among the sheep. Who will you be counted among? If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we're grateful for the mercy that is being extended to us. We're grateful for your son and the fact that he willingly gave his life for us, shed his blood, not just to say he experienced all the aspects of humanity, birth, life, and death, but rather to become the sacrifice and allow his blood to wash away our sins. Father, we are grateful today for the forgiveness that has been made available to us. Lord, there are likely people here today that have not yet experienced your forgiveness and grace. Lord, I pray right now that each individual would feel so compelled in their heart. Lord, I pray that your spirit would impress upon them the need to confess their sin before you, that they may be forgiven so that no longer those sins could be held against them. Father, I pray today that you would allow them to now walk and live in a way that reflects the new birth, the fact that they are new creations in you. The old is gone, the new has come. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would allow them to walk and to live as a reflection of you. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray for the young people earlier that Amy prayed for, who made this decision already this week. Lord, I pray that we would follow in their footsteps, but I also pray that you would guard their every footstep. Lord, I pray that your spirit work in, in and through them. I pray for their family members. I pray for moms and dads to respond to the same offer of grace that their kids have responded to. Lord, I pray for teachers at school. I pray for their, their friends, their siblings. I pray that you would allow these children to live as testaments to the transforming work that you can do in and through them. Lord, I pray that you do the same thing through each of us. Father, we look forward to the day where we are welcomed into your presence. We rejoice over the fact that there is coming a day when all of the hardship, all of the struggle of this world will come to an end and we will live for eternity with you. If there be one here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray right now, that they would surrender their lives to you so that they can have the same promise and hope that we have. Be honored in us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just suggest that if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, maybe even today, I would love to be able to talk with you, to be able to go further. I want to be able to walk alongside you. I would love to be able to, it's called discipleship, where you take someone else on this journey with you. It doesn't mean that I necessarily teach you, but it means we grow together. And it's an opportunity for us to be the body of Christ together. So if you've made that decision to cross that line, to enter into faith with Jesus Christ, I would love to be able to talk with you today and to be able to follow up with you. It is such a blessing to be with you today. 
And I believe that God's about to do some great things. In the next two weeks, we're going to continue in this series. We're going to look at it from different perspectives. I'm not just going to preach the same sermon. I heard of a preacher who preached the same sermon three weeks in a row. And finally, one of the board members asked him, why do you keep preaching the same message? He said, when y'all get it right the first time, I'll stop and move on to the next. I'm not going to preach the same message next Sunday. But it is going to be the same theme the new birth that God has made available to us. We invite you to come back. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.